was great growing up having so many encouraging people, but it can almost be overwhelming to hear constantly, you can do anything. You could be the president, right? Because when you're little, you're like, well, Jesus, everyone expects me to be the president someday. And maybe I do want to just raise my kids or maybe I want to open a restaurant or maybe I want to work at, you know, the preschool down the street. So, and does that mean, what does that mean to them? What is, what are they thinking about those choices if I make them? And now for something completely different. Welcome to Surrounded by Idiots Radio Podcast. From the beautiful, picturesque deserts of the southwestern states of the United States of America to the shores of the Nunsuch River in beautiful in the beautiful hamlet of Scarborough, Maine, and all points beyond. This is the Surrounded by Idiots Radio Podcast. This is Tony Frame PhD. Back with you. Uh, welcome. Uh, happy New Year and all. And I'm bringing back on one of my favorite people, Mariah. Mariah posted something really, really good. My core audience, this is their thing. This is the thing they deal with all the time because I do too. So I'm attracting the energy that I'm putting out is I'm attracting it back. And I'm trying, I think we're just trying to commiserate with, the- with each other, but it's perfectionism. I want Mariah to tell her story. So can you go over your story that you shared on Facebook? Yeah, so when I was 22, I had graduated from Colby and had decided to go to law school. Um, Part of it was because I was an idealist and I thought I could, you know, help solve the world's humanitarian issues by becoming a lawyer. And I think the other part was that I was a student and I've always been a student and remaining in academia seemed like a safe decision when I wasn't completely sure of what else to do. So um, I had many moments before I actually left to go to law school where I kind of had a gut feeling that it was not the right choice. Um, I was dreading it. I was constantly trying to convince myself that it was the right choice. Um, It wasn't great. And so I went because God forbid I changed my mind and moved to Texas and went alone and, uh, you know, furnished this little apartment with a bunch of crap from Target and went to class and was very different from my classmates. I mean, I, I could not have been in a more different place than the place I grew up. Mm. Um, and I hated every single moment of it. In fact, I remember sitting <laughs> in my underwear in my apartment one night because it was so damn hot. And I was drinking a bottle of Arbor Mist, and I was listening to Celine Dion sing all by myself and just <laughs> bawling my eyes out. Oh my <laughs> if you can picture it. I can. Uh, I, 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 I not, not surprisingly, I can picture that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, I really tried. I gave it a couple more days, and I finally called my parents, and I said, you know what? Um, I'm quitting. I'm done. I cannot do this. I hate, I hate this. And they didn't fight me on it, which I was, I was bracing myself for. I thought for sure there was going to be a battle royale Mm. and they hopped back on a plane. God love them. And they hauled my shit all the way back to Maine. (laughs) (laughs) So how long was it? How many days was that? Did you last it out? 30. You lasted. So it was a, it was a full 30 days. Okay. A full 30 days. Right. Yeah. Seemed like probably. Uh, longer than that, I would, I would, right? Yes. Exactly. The very worst. Um, 
Yep. And I got back to Maine and I had zero idea what I was going to do next and just started uh, going through what my sister and I lovingly call my dark face, where I started wearing black nail polish and going to poetry slams and writing music by candlelight and dragging her into that mess with me as I tried to figure out how to Mm -hmm. (laughs) navigate my pathetic new life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, it was ugly. It was ugly, but, uh, and I was so ashamed, you know, like I was just horrified. Um, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was embarrassed. I thought everyone was going to look at me as this big failure for leaving um, or think that I couldn't cut it or wasn't smart enough. So I kind of isolated for a while and I eventually got a job and, you know, moved on and life turned out okay. But it was, it was a pretty big moment in my, what do you call those moments, Tony? Nodal events. Thank you. That it was a big nodal event Mm. in my life. (laughs) What happened prior to that? What was your mindset going into that? I mean, I think part of it is that um, growing up, I was always a very traditional learner, a traditional student. I, ex- I mean, I excelled in basically every subject. Not to, that's not to brag. That's just like school came fairly easily to me, and I worked really hard, and my hard work immediately translated to success. And there was no other option when you're in high school and in growing up, it's kind of like, no, this is what we're all doing. We're all in this little boat together. And I was doing really well in that little boat, in that little pond. And then I went to Colby and it was kind of more of the same. So I studied something that I was always good at. And I was surrounded by people who were also very into school and higher education. And a lot of them were going on to, you know, law school, med school, getting PhDs, whatever. And so it was kind of just this, this natural progression in my mind like okay well we're done here and now we're all going to go on and do more and that's what the smart kids are doing and I'm a smart kid and that's what I'm good at I'm good at school and you know nothing prepares you really for a real world application of anything in school right I mean it you learn a lot of skills and you you learn a lot about people and whatever but for the most part you're pretty isolated and everything's pretty structured and you you're given a lot of direction. So I think I moved into it thinking, oh, this will just be another another easy thing to do, right? Like, I'm going to, obviously, I'm going to succeed. And then when I got there and took a look around and went, oh, my God, I, I absolutely cannot do this for three more years, let alone the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I cannot do it. My soul will die. <laughs> what are the feelings that came up when you actually got out there and you re- and you realized that you just couldn't put 110% into it? I mean, it's just it's almost like confronting your biggest demon. There was a point before I went to law school where a friend of mine, I say that with air quotes because a friend wouldn't say this to you, but he was kind of crass and he was on the phone with me one day and he said something to the effect of, People like you aren't lawyers and leaders. You belong barefoot in the kitchen. Wow. Um, And I died a little bit inside because I had always struggled with my whole life just being kind of a people pleaser, non-confrontational, not very good at advocating for myself. And to me, that was very much a slap in the face because I felt it was true to some degree. And so I kept hearing that voice. Not that that was the only thing, but that was one thing like, oh, my God, is everyone thinking this? And is everyone going to just nod and go, of course, she dropped out. Like, 
she needs to just, you know, go raise some kids. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I just, I was really struggling with what my identity was and how I was being perceived. And it was more important to be perceived a certain way than to actually be happy. What, what, how did you want to be perceived? Um, I wanted people to think that I was smart and determined and successful and financially sound. And I wanted them to think I was making the world better. And I wanted them to think that I was, you know, really kind of like fulfilling this destiny that I was always meant to do. Um, and you know, it is hard. I think It was great growing up having so many encouraging people, but it can almost be overwhelming to hear constantly, you can do anything. You could be the president, right? Because when you're little, you're like, well, Jesus, everyone expects me to be the president someday, and maybe I do want to just raise my kids, or maybe I want to open a restaurant, or maybe I want to work at, you know, the preschool down the street. So, and does that mean, what does that mean to them? What is, what are they thinking about those choices if I make them? Exactly. You know, the funny thing is, is that it, you can take perfectionism and you can actually break it down into two things. It's more the internal external thing. There's one called self-oriented perfectionism. And as a uh, as the oldest in the family, you and me, uh, yeah. that that comes with a lot of that comes with a lot of that sometimes uh, in terms of right. just because you're in that position and you are the first and you're the one to set the example. And you're also, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that a lot of times that plus just personality traits in regards to the dynamics of the family, sometimes it creates some level of, of perfectionism, which is a, which is a very unconscious thing at all, a lot of times during your life. And something that a lot of people don't deal with until they have to, or until they can't, if that makes any sense. If they're mm-hmm. up, if they're up against it and then they can't, then they implode. There's an, the other part of perfectionism, it's called socially prescribed perfectionism which is a bit of a both of those things kind of put together because it's your internal thing and and you're trying to do what you're trying to do but you're looking for the reinforcement from Mm -hmm. the from your environment in order to continue forward with that and then when your friend comes along and says you know you should probably just be a mom basically and you're like hold on a minute man it's not like i don't disagree with you but right. that that's not but that's not my identity and that's not me and then I would be letting down not only myself if I didn't follow this path but everybody else that expects me to do this. Right. And that's the debilitating thought process of a perfectionist because you it keeps you in that box to where if you do need to go out if you do need to expand into a certain dynamic or a certain level or a certain you know area of life and you and you can't because you're constrained by that thought process, that subconscious thought process. Then you're you're just doomed. Then that's when depression comes along, and that's when anxiety comes along. And as a matter of fact, that there was a study done in 1990 and 1993, and it indicated that perfectionists are at a greater risk of experiencing depression than non-perfectionists, especially during periods of stress like school and work and relationships, or after experiencing failure. You, you have this mindset that everybody around you has that expectation as well, which is generally not true, mm-hmm. but that's what keeps you stuck in that. And then that puts you in that downward spiral to where then you're letting yourself down and then you think you're letting them down and then you're putting on too much pressure. Well, a lot of times what happens is you get to that point and then you just you bail or you procrastinate. 
Mm-hmm. When you get to the point where it's not working for you and you don't have the flexibility because you're stuck in that perfectionist bubble, then procrastination sets in because it's almost like you just it, it's a shutdown. It's an overload. It's it's overthinking, overthinking, over, analysis paralysis, overthinking, whatever you want to call it. It just shuts you down. And then you will rationalize doing anything else. I wanted to revisit your story and kind of find out how you finally surrendered to the process and what happened after that. Yeah. So, I mean, it got to the point where I just decided, you know what? Um, You need to just get a job. First of all, you're going to start paying loans soon. So let's just get a job and let's get some money coming in and then we'll, we'll go from there. And I knew that I needed to stay at home for a bit to save some money. And so I said, all right, well, that limits things. I, I have to get a job in Maine. And I'm a Spanish major. So, you know, that's not there's not going to be a ton out there. Okay, so yeah. So I finally got a job after a couple months at uh, an insurance company as a customer service rep. And I was a bilingual customer service rep. So I had clients who spoke English and Spanish. Um, and I hated that job. I loved the environment. I loved the people I worked with. But the actual job was possibly as if not more soul sucking than (laughs) going to law school and so at that point I thought you know what it doesn't really matter you just need to kind of suck it up for now because you have no experience or life skills otherwise and so to make myself feel better I started volunteering at the children's ward at May Medical Center and I was a child life assistant So I was just with kids and kind of helping them prep before their procedures, keeping them happy, keeping them calm, playing, whatever, art therapy. And I loved it. I loved being in the hospital. I loved being with the kids. I loved talking to their parents and and kind of helping them through that hard point. And um, I knew I wanted to do something kind of in that realm, but I didn't have the confidence. I was not a science person. Okay. I was never labeled. I was a, an arts and humanities girl. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I thought, Ooh, God, you know, anything medical, that's science and math. That's not my forte. So I found a great job at the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And I went, Oh my God, this is perfect. I get to work with these same pediatric patients and I get to do things to make them happy, but I don't need to be good at these other things. And that was great. But then that wasn't enough. Because then I kept getting interested in the medical part of it. I, I was more fascinated by that than by the other parts of my job, working with the doctors, working with the nurses. And then I met Chris. And Chris uh, needs to get a lot of credit because he has always been my he's always been my number one fan with this stuff, and he's never ever said to me like, "I just I don't know if you'd be good at that." Like, my parents were always really supportive, but even they, with the nursing stuff, they were like, really? Mm. Like, "Eh." and my Mm. mom's a nurse, and I think she kind of was like, why would you want to do this? Like, you could do something so much more glamorous. This is not a glamorous world. Mm -hmm. But I didn't care. I'm not a glamour gal, so it's fine. But he kept, when I had come up with the idea, like, just tossing it around, uh, he thought it was awesome. And he kept encouraging me to think about it and look into it and I finally bit the bullet and I was like you know what I'm just going to start taking these classes I'm going to start taking these prereqs and see where it goes and it was a process I met you when I hadn't even started nursing school yet that's I mean, right it was yeah. it was a long process probably four to five years in the making between coming up with the idea and actually graduating but it was amazing and it was like 
a new hard, you know, like nursing school wasn't any easier than law school, but I was in it and I was happy to do the work and I was motivated to stay up late studying and just soak it all in. I wasn't dreading it. Mm -hmm. The key that that you had indicated was you have to decide to do something first. It's so simple. It's oversimplified. It's just you do the first thing that's right in front of you. You take that first step on that first brick in front of you just to get the thing going and momentum going. Then did you have to on your path going through that? Did you have to constantly remind yourself to just, you know, chill out and let things happen? Or was there a, was there a oh. different was there a different mindset that you that you took on and how did you get that? Um I had to be so patient. I was not used to having to wait for things or spend years working toward a goal before I achieved it. It wasn't like a linear path, like you said. And so, you know, it between starting the actual classes for prereqs alone, I was first in Indiana while Chris was finishing his career stuff, his schooling and, and training. Then we were in Arizona and I was still chipping away at prereqs and threw myself into another totally different type of nonprofit work and and had to really wait, you know, and I had to get some rejection letters because it's not easy to get into nursing school. And I had to kind of wait for all of this timing to be right. And so I kept, every time I would get frustrated, and I did because at this point, I also had probably four or five friends who were all going back to school for something in the medical field. And they were all just like seamlessly transitioning. Oh, wasn't, was isn't like, that the worst? Isn't flounder. that the worst? The worst. Because it's not just, the it's worst. just not, it's, it's not just going on Instagram and seeing the influencers or the perfect, you know, filtered bodies or whatever, you know, in terms of, you know, looking at things in context or comparison. It's people you know. So it was really hard. I won't lie. I mean, and I had a lot of ugly green moments and I mean luckily I had physical distance from all of those people because it certainly wasn't their fault and I didn't love them any less but I didn't want them to see kind of what I thought of as this ugly side of me um so a lot of it went into venting to Chris um a lot of it honestly went into writing like I just started channeling a lot of my energy into blogging which might sound silly but I've been doing it for like I don't even know at this point, 13 years or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I just found that to be therapeutic. And I also kind of, I always go back to this thing and I truly do believe as cliched as it sounds that we all have different gifts that are needed at different times. And so I kept reminding myself that there was a reason I was waiting. There was a reason I was needed in this other capacity or there was something that was going to come along that would make it all make sense. And sure enough, it did because the program I ended up getting into was the bilingual Spanish program, Hmm. which isn't like anywhere else in the country. Hmm. It was like this perfectly formed little gift to me that I could actually use these two different paths that I was passionate about and put them together and help an entirely different population and help more people than I could have if I'd gone somewhere else. And so when that all came about, I was like, oh my God, that's why those other things didn't work out. Thank you for that. I hope things are good back there. You can say hi to everybody. I I, I see the posts. So, you know, it's all good. You can go to javabud.com, J-A-V-A-B-U-D. 
Uh, you can go to you can you can go to Amazon for the book. Uh, also, go to Mariah's uh, blog, which is the Mama Love Movement. And so thank you very much again for coming on and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.